1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 1 through 13. Now there was a certain man of Ramathaim, Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroboam, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other one was Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penaniah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year when she went up, when she went up to the house of the Lord that she, that she provoked her. Therefore, she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after, that, after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorsteps of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the afflictions of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. Thank you, Tracy, for plowing you through the um, wonderful Hebrew names, which mean a lot, but uh, uh, for us, most of us, they are... um, somewhat uh, Chinese-y. I wanted to uh, pause for a minute and just ask the Lord's blessing as we uh, look into this portion. Father God, we thank you for the amazing miracle that takes place as we look into your word, how you speak to us, how your word comes alive, Lord, how you cause your word to become living in us, transformative. And we pray, Lord God, for each one of us today to hear from you as we have been listening all morning. Thank you, Lord, that you do speak to us in a variety of ways. And so we ask, Lord, for that um, to take place the remainder of our time in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. Glad to see everybody here today. Um, the stout souls who are not um, deterred by rain, although some of us are uh, organites and love this. Um, I'll stop. The portion today. Um, assumes that you know a number of things that you may not know, and so I want to take some time to give you a little bit of background. Um, Samuel is at the tail end of the period of Judges. And if, if you have read through the book of Judges recently, you'll know that this was one of the, most, the worst, most depraved uh, periods in Israel's history. All kinds of things um, take place during that time. In fact, uh, people have referred to the period of the judges as a spiritual sewer. Um, And it doesn't get a whole lot better for a while here. In fact, uh, we'll find out in first couple of chapters of Samuel that the sons of the high priest are putting the moves on women who come to worship God in the tabernacle. Kind of gives you a clue 
of where things are spiritually, not in great shape. Um, and, you know, when you think about it, uh, this is so 21st century-ish, isn't it? So contemporary. Uh, just a couple of things, hopefully not to depress you too much. Um, finally, after three years of dilly-dallying, we have the beginning of the court case of James Holmes. Um, and as you listen to some of the proceedings, uh, you just shake your head because um, it frankly boggles the mind, doesn't it? Um, when he was first picked up, he wanted to know if any children were hurt after his rampage at the, at the theater. And you listen to that and you think, is there any kind of moral, ethical brain in your head? Then, of course, we had the Garland shooting, uh, which wasn't um, a great occasion to begin with. It was a uh, some kind of a conclave uh, of people exhibiting caricatures of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, you know, not a real smart thing to do these days and age. And so, of course, you have these couple of um, soldiers of the caliphate, apparently, um, who came prepared to do all kinds of damage. And, um, you know, after a while, you, you stop being shocked by things because uh, the shock value really stops making an impact anymore, doesn't it? Um, and so this is so much, you know, when you read the book of Judges, there's just so much depravity, and, and you say, well, this is where, where we are. And yet, what, uh, what hopefully we'll be able to take away as we look at this portion is that somehow God manages to carry on his work in the midst of the darkness. And I want to encourage you because as we hear about ISIS in the morning, ISIS at noon, ISIS at night, um, you know, ISIS uh, in Saudi Arabia, ISIS across the border in Mexico, and so on and so forth, you get ISIS Meshugane. Um, and part of what I see sometimes on the barometer of uh, sanity, Facebook, is I see a lot of people worked up, particularly believers, and my response to say is, yes, I share the fear of, it, of all of us, but because we are sons and daughters of God, do we have some kind of a clue that he is still alive and well and active in the midst of all of this? And as we look in 1 Samuel, we'll see that that's exactly the case. This is, again, the period of the judges. But here you have God working through points of light, points of light individuals who are sold out for God, who are willing to follow his ways, and whom God uses in the accomplishment, in the uh, carrying out of his big plan. Obviously, as we go through the rest of the story, we'll see that Israel's history changes dramatically because of what takes place in this chapter. So there's a man named Elkanah. Uh, and by the way, remember that biblically, uh, the names are very significant. They're not like Bobby, uh, Johnny, uh, Susie, and so on. Uh, they all refer to a person's destiny or a person's character, Elkanah, if you remember uh, the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, uh, the Lord refers to himself as Elkanah, the jealous God. In other words, he doesn't put up with us cavorting with other gods, pursuing and chasing all kinds of other things that have nothing to do with God. Um, his wife's name is Hannah, which has to do with uh, grace or favor being given by somebody. 
which obviously will refer to her, and even her, um, her opponent in the family, the one who is duking it out with her, Penina, in Hebrew means a pearl, and she was quite a pearl. Um, so this family, in the midst of the godlessness and depravity, what did they do? Every single year they come to Shiloh, which is where the tabernacle was situated at that time. They come to worship God. The Hebrew word lishtachavot literally means to prostrate themselves and bring offerings. And the other thing that jumped out at me, which may not jump out at you unless you happen to be someone like Elaine Dallaire, um, is that the name for God that is used repeatedly in Samuel is Adonai Tzvaot, the Lord of hosts. In other words, the captain of the armies of heaven. A very powerful name which su suggests that God has all kinds of capacity to unleash power especially during times that seem to be out of control. They come to worship Adonai Svaot, and they do that year after year after year. Now, again, remember, this is not like, you know, we kvetch. Okay, Shabbat morning is, uh, according to demog demographers, the worst possible time to have a worship service. Uh, you work hard all week, Shabbat morning, what do you want to do? You want to crash. You want to sleep in especially when the weather is as lovely as it is. Um, and by the way, we sure appreciate all of you that were motivated to come out this morning. Um, but think about what would happen if instead of getting in a car and driving, you would have to schlep for a day or two with your family and on top of that, bring an offering. Now, we're looking at a bull. Any ideas what it's like to uh, move from place to place with a big bull. And so um, these folks are obviously highly motivated to come and to honor God. And in all likelihood, what we see here is that they offer what's been called the so-called peace offering. It's better translated as fellowship offering which is something that the people of Israel were commanded, excuse me, they were not commanded to do. This was purely voluntary when the people of Israel were blessed. Um, you know, you were driving on I-25, someone cuts in front of you and misses you by a foot, and you say, thank you, Lord. You bring a thank offering. Well, we don't go to Jerusalem and bring a bull, but that's kind of the idea. You you do it voluntarily. And what would happen is it would be divided basically into three portions. A third would be burnt as an expression that belongs to God. A third would be given to the priest and his family. And then a third would be given to the offerer, to the one who brought the offering. So that's why it's called a fellowship offering. It had sort of a a, a festival meal. And that's what they did year after year. Wonderful, wonderful um, example of a godly family until we come a little closer. We come in for um, a, a closer pass, and then we see that this family, like everybody who is in Scripture, they have their warts and all. Now, I, I don't know about you. I am blessed that Scripture doesn't use Photoshop in presenting the godly characters. Because if they were presented with Photoshop, I would be highly discouraged because I would feel like, well, what does the Word of God have to say to me? But instead, we see these folks who are God-honoring and yet have all kinds of warts and, 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 and sins. Um, again, we don't exactly know because we're not there. We're not going to try and, and do uh, tele tele. Uh, psychologizing, you, you know, kind of figure out exactly what went on. But just from what we see in Scripture here, it wasn't a real pretty sight. Uh, we don't know Hannah's portion of it, but Penina certainly 
did did, uh, did some significant damage. In fact, uh, verse six. Here we see that that God had closed Hannah's womb. Now look at it, folks. It wasn't just that she was barren, naturally speaking. God was personally involved in seeing to it that she was barren, which should tell you, should give you a clue that this is not accidental and that God is going to do something later on. And so Penina, this, this uh, Miss Pearl, um, he, she kept provoking her in order to irritate her. In other words, she kept poking at her, nudging her, until she got a reaction from Hannah. And she wasn't satisfied until she got that reaction. Um, Hebrew word, again, is very strong. It, it kind of gives you a mixture of anger, frustration, and pain, and weeping, and so on and so forth. Uh, just think of it, folks, in a family. This is, you're looking at melodrama here. Uh, you know, the, the, the two main players in the family, the two wives are at it, and uh, you don't exactly have uh, peace and harmony. And uh, so she comes fetching to the husband. The husband says, I'm sorry, honey. Why are you weeping? You're not eating. Um... Am I not better than ten sons? Well, the obvious, her obvious answer is no. Are you absolutely clueless? Um, and by the way, did you notice where all this takes place? The harassment and the um, fussing takes place as they are marching to worship God in the tabernacle, and also when they are in the tabernacle area. Now you think, I will never do that. Well, have you been around folks who come to worship the Lord from time to time? Um, have you seen people uh, pull out their claws and scratch each other? Human nature really doesn't change. But anyways, this doesn't look really uh, very attractive here. And from our perspective with our perfect hindsight 2020 it's not especially encouraging and we also realize that this is something we've seen before uh, with patriarch Jacob and Rachel uh, this is Genesis 30 Rachel sees that she's not bearing children she comes to Jacob and she says to him, she makes this very clear, dramatic statement. Give me children or I die. Can't really say a whole lot to that. So one day they're coming and they're eating this fellowship meal. And um, it's a bitter meal. Hannah stands up, this is uh, verse 9 and 10, in bitterness of soul. Um, Hannah gets up and she is apparently uh, weeping uncontrollably. The Hebrew there has the idea that it, it is um, sobbing, uncontrollable, uh, sobbing that is uncontrollable. And also, it takes period over takes time over period. It, it's not just one of these quick crying. But think think of the scenario here. They're sitting in the tabernacle area, enjoying this fellowship offering. And the ladies are going at it, and it's so bad that Hannah gets up, and and she bursts out of there, and she is in tears. Sobbing, go someplace in order to cry and not be harassed. And you think, you know, this is not particularly promising. It's like, God, are you working here? And uh, are we going to see something positive take place? Then on top of that, she is crying and weeping and and 
praying in ways that are not especially attractive. In fact, uh, the text tells us that she's praying silently, but her, her lips are moving. Now think about a person, uh, you would observe someone who has been weeping, who is bitter in spirit. Their face doesn't look especially attractive. And um, then they are moving their lips. And so Eli, the high priest, is within eyeshot. He's standing close enough to her to, to see what's going on. And he is very disturbed. Now, this, again, is very bizarre because his sons are doing all kinds of things. But he sees this woman and he, he basically jumps all over her and says, Are you drinking? If you're drinking, put away your, your wine bottle. And so what we see at this point is that what presents itself externally isn't necessarily what is real internally. And some of the greatest things that God does with us, in us, through us, are things that take place inwardly that nobody sees. And that we ourselves don't really fully understand, but it just kind of, work. we get worked up. Sometimes out of desperation. And we pray, and it's not one of these great and glorious prayers, you know, one of these great high priestly prayers, O thou who reignest in this, above the, the cherubim, etc., etc. You've been there, I think, where, as, as Scripture tells us in Romans 8, we don't even know how to pray. We, we, we just get worked up, we're tied up in knots, and um, we want to pray, we're not even sure how to sync with God, you know, I'm using computer language here. Um, we want to sync with God, we don't know how. And somehow it comes about. And particularly in Hannah's case, we know that she is one praying woman. The, word, the words for prayer appear seven times in this, in this chapter. In bitterness of soul, Hannah prayed to the Lord. This is verse 10. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observe, observes her. This is verse 12. Hannah was praying in her heart. Her lips were moving. Her, her lips were moving, but her voice was not. Verse 13. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying out of great anguish and grief. Verse 16. She said to Eli, As surely as the Lord lives, as surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. This is verse 26. Verse 27. I prayed to, to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted me what I asked. Then chapter 2, verse 1. Then Hannah prayed. You get the impression that she is a praying woman. And connecting the dots, you have to realize that this gal is not learning to pray at this particular instant. You know, she wouldn't be praying like this if she had not been in the habit of praying. If she had not spent all kinds of time seeking God in prayer. You don't pray like she did without having the habit and the work, as it were, of someone who spends time in prayer. And it's also a short hop, short hop to realize that her praying didn't stop when Samuel was born. I have no doubt that this praying woman became a praying mother after Samuel was born. And ladies, let me tell you, it's not just because of Mother's Day, but let me tell you something. I am exceedingly grateful that God gave me a praying mother. I went through six years in spiritual la-la land uh, in my 20s where 
I really wasn't sure how to digest life, reality, spiritual truth, and so on. And so I just kind of took a side trip. Didn't go anything really crazy and dangerous, just off uh, in my own little world. And uh, my dear Yiddish mama looked at me, and she wasn't quite sure what to do. And she prayed. And God listens to praying mothers and praying women in general. And yes, there are times when it feels like you are doing nothing but prayer, quote-unquote. But let me tell you something. When we work, we work. But when we pray, God works. And that's the difference. That's the huge difference. Now, part of the prayer here is a little odd for us because it seems like Hannah is making a deal with God, sort of striking a bargain. Quid pro quo, Lord, if you do this, then I'll do this. Uh, she said, again, Adonai Tzvaot, if you will indeed see me and you'll remember me. In other words, with the millions of people you'll remember me and you'll give me a child I will dedicate him to you this is of course the Nazarite vow a form of the Nazarite vow and um, what we have to remember is making vows in those days was a perfectly normal part of people's spiritual walk spiritual relationship to God. And it wasn't something that ended after Yeshua came because we see that the early believers, early followers of Yeshua continue to make vows. You have a couple of examples. Uh, the, the most vivid one, of course, is um, in Acts 21 where Paul comes into town and, and uh, people spread all kinds of lies about him. They say, you are telling Jews to stop living like Jews. So just to make sure that everybody gets it, that this is a, a foolish lie, we want you to take these four guys who have, who have finished their vow and go to the temple and pay for their, um, for their offerings and such. And everybody will know that you are, in fact, a Torah-observant Jew. And Paul's response was, of course, yes, no problem. And he does that. But earlier in the book of Acts, we found that Paul himself undertook a vow. This is the, the little section in the book of Acts that everybody skips over. So did you know that Paul had a haircut? We find that he had a haircut, and in Sankria he had his haircut in order to come fulfill his vow. Now, I know from the 21st century that's a little odd for us because we hear people trying to make all kinds of bargains with God. Lord, uh, if you um, give me a condo in Vail, then I will do X, Y, Z. Or, you know, the... the um, Atheist in a foxhole, God, get me out of here, and I will believe in you. Um, by the way, there was a wonderful, wonderful movie called Unbroken about a fellow um, who, who was um, um, shipwrecked, um, and he made a vow. And portion of it is shown in the movie, unfortunately. Angelina Jolie decided not to show how he fulfilled the vow. But he became a very uh, profound, very committed believer. Uh, the movie is called Unbroken. But for most of us, making vows just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Um, I would say, number one, we really aren't convinced that God is sufficiently committed to us to where we can ask him to do something special. So our prayers are fairly generic, fairly vanilla-ish. So we don't have the holy chutzpah to ask God for something strong and unusual like Hannah did. And of course, 
our vows can, if we make vows, they need to have some direction, some direction from the Spirit of God who gives us some basic spiritual sense. But in any event, she makes a vow and um, she doesn't just say, God, give me a child, but she says, if you give me a child, he'll be yours. Now think about the implication, folks. Here's a woman who has been barren, who is battered, harassed by wife number two continually because she doesn't have children. And she finally, she says, when I finally have a child, I'll give it to you. In other words, I'll keep him long enough to take care of him. Uh, weaning a child in those days probably took a couple of years. But you can imagine taking a, a young, cute child and and releasing him to God's service. That's hard, isn't it? But Hannah is willing to do that. She's willing to do that because that's the kind of woman she is. And as, as I read and meditated on, on her story, what jumped out at me is the fact that we really don't know how to pray like Hannah does. For lots of reasons, uh, we are short attention span. You know, we we pray and then uh, uh, we are distracted because the dog barked, or we pray because and then we get distracted because we're tired and we drift off to sleep. Or even when we pray, we come with a long a long laundry list and say, God. Uh, I need this, 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 and this. And we don't consider the fact that maybe God might have something to say to us. Prayer, folks, is not a monologue. It's a dialogue. So the question I wanted to pose to you is, if someone were to watch you praying, what would they see? Would they see someone like Hannah? who is intensely seeking God to the point where she is looking like she's drunk. And yes, I realize it is bizarre, but the truth is, folks, we don't know how to pray with intensity, with desperation, because we're not convinced that God hears, knows, understands, and cares, and is able to do anything. And so because of that, our prayers are fairly generic. Because we don't expect a whole lot. And at some point, God in his mercy brings us between a rock and a hard place to where we're desperate and we, and we realize that God is the one and only recourse we have. In other words, we don't go here, 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 and then say, okay, God, I, I've run out of options. I'm coming to you now. But that we learn instinctively as life presents itself to come and see God and say, Lord, what do you think about this? And during special times to come in desperation, where you pour your heart out to God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? And the more I read the story, the more I realized that at the point at which Hannah looks like she is drunk and the high priest gets on her case, and she had just left the family table in desperation and in tears, that, folks, is the tipping point of the story. That's when things begin to radically change for Hannah, her family, and her nation. The worst possible moment in the story, visibly, is actually the point that God breaks through. 
invisibly. It's the tipping point. And yes, she's still barren. Yes, she's still humiliated. But at this point, as she's talking to Eli, something broke. Something broke in heavenly. God heard her prayers, and they were reach nichoch. They were sweet-smelling incense. They, they synced with God's heart. And God signed off on her prayer request at that point. Worst possible moment in the story. And of course, it started to come as she receives the verbal approval by Eli. But Eli is just a mouthpiece, folks. He's doing what the priests were supposed to do in general terms. You know, when an Israelite brought an offering and confessed their sins and, and, and had the animals slaughtered, the priest pronounced them to be forgiven. But the priests were simply carrying out God's heart and God's will. Eli conveys God's heart to her and tells her simply, your prayers have been heard. Now, those are strong words, folks. I don't know very many of us that would look to someone who is in that kind of desperation and say, your words have been heard. In this case, obviously, that's the case. And so there's obviously a lot we don't know here. But what is amazing here in all the stories that we've, in all the examples that we find in Scripture of the great intercessory prayers with, with Moses and with Daniel and, of course, with Yeshua, this is the one example where we see a kind of a window into the soul of the person who is praying and and a brief description of what's taking place in their in their innards as they're praying. What a wonderful, wonderful example of that. How how that she came in desperation, she hears the simple word from Eli, and she walks away changed. She's a changed woman. In fact, the Hebrew is is very um very graphic um, in verse 18 uh, Hannah went her way and ate something and her face was no longer downcast the Hebrew word simply says um, and her face or faces uh, were no longer there in other words w w the way her face was before kind of disappeared totally different woman and uh, they get up they worship the Lord again, hishtachavot, to prostrate. And um, God hears her prayers. And she knows that God has heard her prayers. I don't know, if, folks, if you have had those moments when you were praying and at some point something clicked in your heart, in your spirit, and you knew that God heard and answered your prayers. And you had this basic sense of shalom that he had things under control and that he was working. Again, remember that practically speaking, nothing had changed. This is still a barren woman who is still being harassed by her rival. Nothing will change until she and Elkanah get together and so on. But at this point... Practically speaking, realities on as far as facts on the ground is the same. And we are so used to functioning according to facts on the ground, to the things that we see and feel and hear and smell. We don't really understand what it's like to see things from God's perspective. 
eagle's eyes perspective where the eagle mounts up and and has this overview of what's going on You find ex- other examples of that in the scripture. For example, in, in Israel, in Elijah's time, it did not rain for three years. And it was still dry as a bone. And Elijah tells the king, the rotten king Ahab, get in your chariot, get going, because it's going to rain. And Elijah runs in front of the chariots. And as he does the rain starts to come. And somehow, folks, how that happens, this interaction between the things that are invisible in the heavenlies and what somehow is translated into practical reality is a mystery. But we have to learn to function not just down here, but also up here. We... we, like Hannah, need to learn to wrestle with God. Another good example, of, of course, is patriarch Isaac. Did you know that Isaac was a praying man? He got married. His wife was barren. He prayed for 20 years. He prayed for his wife for 20 years. That's a long time. And he didn't just pray. The Hebrew word for, for prayer that is used about Isaac, Atar has the sense of intensely seeking God. <clears throat> and what's peculiar or what's odd is that the same Hebrew word is used basically for how God responded. Isaac cried out to God for God's favor and God gave his favor. It took 20 years. See examples of Daniel praying for weeks on end, hearing absolutely nothing. See, of course, examples of Yeshua. And one of my favorites is a fellow named Epaphras in a city of Colossae, which is Turkey. Paul says the following about Epaphras. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Messiah Yeshua, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Greek where there agonizo has the sense of we get agonized from it. Um, the the uh, Olympic Games, you know, where, where, where athletes were wrestling to the point that to the point of exhaustion. Now, we're not used to that kind of praying, folks. We're not used to that kind of praying. And I, I dare say that what we experience then is the same reality because we, we pray, we, don't, we, we have not because we don't, we don't ask. Verse 19, this plays out. God remembers his promise to Hannah and the family is irrevocably changed. Now, again, this, this is human language. It's not as if God has forgotten and you need to come up and say, Yo, God, remember. It's human language for, for the Lord <clears throat> made a commitment and it was his time on his calendar to act. And so Hannah becomes pregnant and um, she names, she delivers a child. His name is Shmuel because she says, God has heard me. And um, the family goes up to Shiloh again to bring their sacrifices. And she says, no, I want to stay behind. I want to make sure that he is properly weaned. And Elkanah's response was to say to her, do what seems best to you. Stay until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. 
Now, what we need to remember is that a father had the kind of authority, a husband had the kind of authority where he, he could look at, at Hannah and say, Lady, forget this. Um, I'm the man of the house, and I say we go, so we go. And he's obviously in step with her, and not just in step with her, he's in step with God. Now, this is going to be just a baby. But as a result of this baby, Shmuel, Samuel, the nation of Israel will be radically changed. The word of God will be proclaimed over and over and over and over again. And people will know that God is alive and well. And they will know that they can come to this guy and hear the word of God. Something that did not exist before. The previous statements say that there was a, f a, a, a famine, a hunger. In other words, the, the word of God just didn't go out. It was spiritually dry, spiritually dead. And because of this baby, who then becomes a man of God, the word of God grows, and at some point Israel then transitions into a monarchy. And all of that, folks, begins with this woman who is looking like she is drunk as she is praying. The tipping point in our prayer life can sometimes look ugly. Hopefully, it will look ugly as we wrestle and struggle, as we cry out to God, as we knock on His door, and pound on His door for answers, because we're desperate. We have a sense of desperation. We cry out to God and say, Lord, you're, you're the only recourse I have. And we learn to seek God, not just once or twice and, 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 and put in a quarter in the, in the prayer machine and out will come God's answer. But we learn to wait and, and, and wrestle. And for each one of us, it's going to look different. But the truth is, if, if it comes about intensely, it's not going to look very polite and, and very nicely measured, nicely laid out. It comes from deep, deep in our heart. And, we've, and we wait. Last Shabbat we talked about the counting of the Omer, how that you go through a fairly long period of time, Sfirata Omer, where you have just had the barley first fruits, now you have this 49-day uh, period that you wait for the rest of the harvest to come. And that's part of the process of growth and maturation in our life, getting answers from God as we learn to do it in desperation. And you say, ah, that's not me. I don't believe in being desperate. I've got things managed and he or she may look like they're drunk when they're praying, but, but I am respectable. That's a problem. It's a problem. And it's, I, I dare say, and gentlemen, let me just address a word to you, since I, I is one. Um, we often look at prayer as women's work. You know, we're busy, we have things to do, we... We go to work, take care of the family and so on. The ladies are the ones who are doing intercession. That grieves me. Grieves me no end. Because it, it conveys the fact that we are not willing to get to know God, to get in tune with His plans and His strategy for us and our family. And we are content to let somebody else do the praying doesn't say much doesn't say much and 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 i i long to see our men recruited into the work of the kingdom in intercession we're blessed to have a number of praying men i give thanks to god but 
I long for the day when more of our men would have the grasp and the vision for what takes place in God's kingdom in the heavenlies as we learn to engage in deep and intense prayer and intercession. May the Lord give us all, men and women and young people, a vision for the breakthroughs, the tipping points that come about as we learn to wrestle with God in prayer. Let's pray. Abba Father, we acknowledge our inconsistency, Lord, how did we sometimes make great pronouncements of our desire to do this, that, and the other for you, and we forget or distracted. Lord God, we pray, especially today, in this area of prayer and intercession, we ask, Lord God, that you would raise up intercessors, men and women, Lord God, who would know how to lay hold of you, Lord, who would know how to seek you in, in intensity and in desperation, Lord God, for the crying needs that are all around us. Lord God, we pray that you would speak to each one of us, Lord. Show us, Lord God, where our place is in this very crucial area. Give us those necessary lessons, Lord, on what it means to become praying men and women, Lord. Teach us, Lord God, what it means to wait upon you in confident expectation. Receive much honor and glory, Lord God, as that takes place. We pray that your kingdom would expand vigorously, Tavomalchotecha, as that takes place in our life. We ask this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.